On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll talk about the amazing story of the birth of Jesus. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for listening. When you open the New Testament, you see that the Gospel of Matthew begins with a list of names. In the King James Version, it reads, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar, and Phares begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and on it goes. What is the meaning of this? The story of God's greatest wonder begins with a list of names? Is this just a boring bunch of begats? No way. These names show how Jesus fits into God's overall plan. The names tell the story of struggle and triumph, sin and adversity, faith and vision throughout the centuries. It's the story of real people living and moving across the face of time and place with God guiding it all. The list recalls the themes of God's work in history, His calls, His rebukes, His long-suffering love. You read these names, especially if you are Jewish, and you remember all that God has done. Sometimes He intervenes. Sometimes it appears that He has lost control. Isn't that what your life looks like and mine? But God hasn't lost control. The work of history is all of one fabric, woven by God. It's all in His plan. And now His plan is coming together in Jesus. The names also tell us about Jesus' family ties. Family background influences everybody. Often you can see patterns that trace back for generations. This list at the beginning of Matthew shows that Jesus' family lines line up. There are some black sheep in the family, Abraham the liar, Jacob the supplanter, David the adulterer murderer, But until Jesus, all God ever had to work with were imperfect people. It's just that some of them were available to God, and no one will be more available than Jesus. A mere list of names? Why, any other beginning would sever the story from its roots. So the curtain is rising on the greatest story that could ever be told, the story in which we are participants, the story for which we are the cause. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus begins not with Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, but with John the Baptist and his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were good people, the kind you'd love to have as neighbors. Zechariah and Elizabeth were Levites from the tribe whose men were devoted to serving in the temple. There were too many Levites for each man to have regular responsibilities, so assignments were parceled out to the men over time. One day, the call came for Zechariah, incense duty. As Zechariah and Elizabeth journeyed to Jerusalem, no doubt a sense of family pride and godly satisfaction lifted their aging bodies and hearts. As Zechariah moved through his sacred responsibilities, suddenly he saw, what was it? A ghost? No, an angel. What is happening, he wondered. Then the angel spoke. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, the angel said, which is exactly what he was. Your prayer has been heard. 
Elizabeth will have a son, and you will name him John. He will be the forerunner of the Christ, turning the hearts of the fathers back to their children and preparing the people for the Lord. After the angel left, Zechariah was left to his thoughts. What did this unexpected message mean? It meant that God was working out his plan. If God's message made into man was ever going to get across to people, someone first had to get the people's attention. This was going to be the job of the advance man, John. Bringing John into the world was the assignment God had parceled out to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they had thought incense duty was special. Zechariah and Elizabeth, faithful and true, found their simple lives intertwined with God's majestic eternal plan. It's awe-inspiring to see how God works through a person's life, especially if that person is you. But it is only when you prepare yourself faithfully, as Zechariah and Elizabeth had done, that you will be ready whenever God calls you to do whatever He has in mind for you to do. But over the godly lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth hung an unmistakable cloud. They had never had children. So when the angel told Zechariah that they were going to have a baby at their advanced age after all these years, Zechariah said, in effect, no way. Because of Zechariah's doubting words, God made him unable to speak any words until the baby was born. How much was Zechariah able to communicate to Elizabeth about what he had seen and been told? What thoughts might he have had as he and Elizabeth shared the marriage bed a few nights later? How had she been able to process everything that had happened, so much mystery, so much uncertainty? What feelings did they have when she soon told him, Zechariah, I think I'm pregnant. Don't ever give up on God. Zechariah and Elizabeth had often prayed for a child, but that had been years before. Their time had passed, they thought and it seemed not to be. But God hadn't given them a final no. His answer had only been, not yet, because He had special plans for them. He planned for this godly couple to have a special child, the advance man for the Messiah. Maybe you have given up hope. Maybe you have given up hope. Hope that your child will come back to God. Hope that your spouse will develop a tender heart. Hope that our nation will recover its moral base. Hope that your church will ever get beyond petty issues. Hope that you can ever change. Don't ever give up hope. God brings about His purposes in His time. He makes the desert spring forth with new life in its time. He lifts up the fallen and restores the brokenhearted in His time. He rewards patient faith. He answers long-suffering prayer all in His time. The more we chafe at God's seeming inaction, the more difficult we make it for ourselves. But the more we walk humbly in His way, the more likely it is that we will be able to say with Elizabeth, The Lord has shown me His favor and has taken away my disgrace. Then Luke tells us about the announcement to Mary. An angel, an angel, mind you, said to Mary, a virgin, a virgin, mind you, you're going to have a baby. And Mary thought, not, oh no, or how can I get out of this? But if God says so, who am I to argue with him? 
Mary's trusting response to the stunning news is amazing. How all this would work out was not any clearer to her than it would have been to you or me. But Mary had faith, and faith is being certain of things you can't see. Surely many questions arose in her mind. What would this child be like, this son of the Most High, this heir to the throne of David? How did Joseph, her fiancé, fit in with this? Socially, Mary risked a good deal. An unwed pregnancy was seriously frowned upon. There would be eyebrows raised, her reputation questioned, skeptical scoffing to be endured, such as people saying, Oh, yeah, right, an angel appeared to you, sure. But Mary was a strong young woman, a strong teenager, no doubt. God knew when he chose her what kind of character and faith she had. He knew what she would have to endure and that she could handle this abrupt change of plans. God provided her the grace and strength that she needed. God would not have called her to this mission without providing her with what it would take for her to make it through. What might God's plan be for you? Can you accept it with as much grace as Mary accepted God's plan for her? Can you believe that God will guide you through it, even if it is not what you had counted on? You can't count on your plans all the time, but you can count on God. Then we have to consider Joseph. Joseph was a good man. He always tried to do the right thing. He was looking forward to getting married. Then Mary came back from a trip to see her cousin Elizabeth, and she had some news for him. You can imagine his reaction. What? You can't be. What do you mean? Do you expect me to believe this? which is exactly how he should have reacted if his fiancée had been involved in immorality. Joseph was a good person and would never have stood for that. But Mary was a good person, too, and would never have done that. So why were they in this situation? Because God is good, and God's goodness supersedes our definition of what is good. When Joseph found out, he of course decided to do the right thing. Quiet divorce, no public spectacle. Then, after he had it all figured out, God proceeded to upset his plans once again. An angel appeared to him. Angels never seem to have nice, easy news like everything is going to turn out exactly as you hoped. Instead, the angel said that all this was from God, and therefore, it was good. Joseph had concluded that everything had turned out all wrong. God assured him that everything was going to turn out all right, but not in the way he had expected. All Joseph probably wanted and expected was a quiet life in Nazareth as a carpenter, no doubt like his father and grandfather before him. But God had other plans for Joseph, plans that overthrew his plans, but that also raised his sights higher. Joseph was going to parent the Savior. You never know, but God does. So how do you get a pregnant teenager and her fiancé to travel 70 miles just to stay in a stable? Well, you have their pagan emperor order a census that requires the man to go to his ancestral hometown. At least, that's how God did it. Joseph was a descendant of King David. Significant, to be sure, but not all that uncommon, considering how many wives David had and how long it had been since David had lived. David's hometown was Bethlehem. But Joseph lived up in the Styx, in Nazareth, a town in Galilee in the north of Israel. 
Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. But he wanted to be near Mary since she was about to deliver the miracle baby who had already changed their lives and would change them even more. So together, they made the slow trek south. A stable, though certainly not their first choice, might not have been all that bad. The animals in that Bethlehem barn were important possessions that helped produce food and do chores. They were probably well cared for. The time came. The child who had been uniquely conceived was born the way other children enter the world. Typical birth, typical diaper clothes, unusual bed, unusual nursery. God seems to enjoy the unexpected and the humble. God's Son was entering the world He had helped create, the world over which He rules. So how did He come? As a baby, born in a stable, in an overcrowded little village, because of a census ordered by a pagan emperor who never knew the eternal significance of His decree. But it all made sense to God. We need to look for the hand of God in quiet, unexpected places. Who knows what miracles He might produce, what lives He might change in unexpected ways and places, like a Bethlehem stable. Then God sent the news to shepherds. Shepherds in Bible times did not hold the esteemed position in society that we have given them. It wasn't like, aw, shepherds, how sweet. Shepherds were marginal workers. They probably smelled like the sheep they watched. In first century Israel, you probably wouldn't invite them to your home. So there they were, outside of town, sitting in pitch darkness except for maybe a campfire. Suddenly, the sky was ablaze with light. An angel, the brilliant glory of the Lord, the shocking news, a multitude of angels. Then, darkness again. The bewildered shepherds no doubt looked at each other, trying to figure it out. Then they decided to go into town. Thus, the unlikely recipients of the angel's unlikely message found the unlikely mother and the unlikely child in unlikely surroundings at the end of an unlikely journey to an unlikely village. The traditions and commercialization that have come to surround this event obscure the crucial facts of the story. A virgin had a baby, right where and when he was supposed to be born. The baby was the Son of God. He was going to be the Savior of the world. In that act, God did something momentous for the human race. He became one of us. He bridged the gap that started in Eden and had never really been closed since. He gave us the most vivid demonstration of the meaning of love that we could ever see. He proved that He is a God who keeps His word as prophecy upon prophecy was fulfilled. He showed that simple things like babies and a manger and shepherds and you and I have eternal value and a place in His eternal plan. Bethlehem was a small, nowhere town. The people involved in this miracle were everyday people, a young woman, a carpenter, and shepherds. But since God was involved in Bethlehem, we can truly sing, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. After the birth of Jesus, Mary had to be ceremonially cleansed after having a baby, according to the law of Moses. In addition, her firstborn child had to be redeemed from the Lord, since all firstfruits, including the firstfruits of the womb, belonged to God. 
So Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem to perform these tasks. When they did, they met two remarkable people. God had told good old Simeon, who was indeed good and who was indeed old, that he would not die before he saw the Christ. These days the tabloids would have a field day with that promise, and a lesser person than Simeon might have published a book about the promise. But good old Simeon just kept it to himself. How many mornings did Simeon wake up and wonder if that day would be the day? Now on this day, Simeon learned that God had indeed kept his promise to Israel. Simeon had reason to rejoice, but with this joy he had hard news to tell Mary also. A sword will pierce your soul. In our broken world, redemption would only come at a terrible price. Then good old Anna, who was indeed good and who was indeed old, came up to the special family. Hers had been an unusual life also. Married for only seven years, she had lived as a widow until she was eighty-four. But she had devoted herself to the Lord as a prophetess in the temple. No doubt she had become a fixture there, like Simeon, often taken for granted and perhaps even resented by some. But what was important to her was that she had been faithful in her service to God. She knew that this child would one day accomplish the redemption that so many longed for. But it wouldn't be redemption from occupation by the Romans. It would be redemption from sin. Good old Simeon and good old Anna show us what it means to be faithful regardless. They show us what it means to long for something for years and then to realize its fulfillment. After all their years of faithful service, the culmination of the ages had come in this little baby. God had kept His word. Simeon and Anna knew that their years of waiting, serving, and trusting had not been in vain. Neither are yours. Then we hear about the Magi, or wise men, and their part in the story. They had seen something, a star. They probably knew the Jewish scriptures, especially Numbers 24:17, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. These scholarly, astronomically aware magi had connected the star they had seen with the coming of a special king of Israel. It was worth a trip to find out. When they arrived in Israel and were taken to Herod, they assumed that everyone in Israel knew about the birth. But you never could assume anything about Herod. Old, unstable, and increasingly paranoid, Herod would not rejoice at the thought of a baby born with a crown on his head. In addition, Herod, who was from the region of Idumea to the south of Israel, really didn't know much about the Jewish scriptures. But he did know what to do about potential rivals to his throne. As so many despots do, Herod lived in mortal terror that someone, somewhere, might be having less than favorable thoughts about him. He even feared babies. Deceptive to the end, Herod sent the Magi on their way with the lie that he wanted to worship the baby king also. Apparently, some time had passed since Jesus had been born, because, according to Matthew's account, the family was now staying in a house. When the Magi entered, they fell down before the baby and presented him gifts. These gifts were probably worth more than everything Joseph and Mary would own in their lifetime. 
The Magi played a small but critical role in the unfolding story of Jesus. As foreign travelers, they showed the worldwide impact of his birth. They spilled the beans to Herod, which enabled Matthew to record the prophecy about Bethlehem. The story about the shepherds and the angel in Luke showed a common touch about Jesus' coming, while the Magi's recognition of the child as a king set a royal tone for the rest of the story. The birth of Jesus affected not only a family from Nazareth and shepherds from Bethlehem, but the halls of power on an international level as well. It still affects the world today. The Magi appear suddenly in the story of Jesus. They have immense significance in recognizing the baby as a king. Then God gives them a cue in a dream, and they exit to the opposite side of the stage, never to be heard from or referred to again. I am thankful for the people whom I have been able to call friends for many years, but it has also been my experience that some people come into my life at crucial times, play an important role for a while, and then are gone. I move to where they live, or they move to where I live, or we become close by working on the same project or by being in a group together. We open up to each other and help each other grow. We might spend time in each other's homes. But then, ten years later, we might not even be exchanging Christmas cards. I know we will probably not be close friends again. Did God work on me through their lives? Certainly. What happens to them after we go our separate ways? I haven't the faintest idea. The Magi played this kind of bit part in the story of Jesus. Did they later hear about the crucified Christ? Did they make the rounds of other kings born in the Middle East? How could God give them this much guidance and insight but no more? I don't know the full significance of the Magi, but I do know that they came into the life of Jesus at just the right time and advanced the story just as it was supposed to be advanced. I have to be attuned to the significance of every person who comes into my life, from the wife of my youth to the clerk at the convenience store I meet while traveling out of town, and to my significance for them when I come into their lives. God is probably working in them to advance my story, and in me for theirs, in just the way that each one needs to be advanced. There are no insignificant roles in the drama of life that God writes for each one of us. After Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus met Simeon and Anna at the temple, Luke tells us that the family returned to Nazareth. The baby grew, and as Luke says, the grace of God was upon him. The simple lives of Mary and Joseph had been turned upside down. The small-town couple had suddenly found themselves a major part of God's plan for saving the world. Angel messages, a virgin pregnancy, a visit from awestruck shepherds who themselves had witnessed a remarkable heavenly display, this is not what people usually experience when they welcome a newborn. When would life get back to normal, they might have wondered. Joseph and Mary tried to follow the routine, circumcise the baby on the eighth day, go to the temple for purification. But as any new parent will tell you, things never do get back to normal. Normal now had a new definition. Every step in nurturing God's Son would be charged with wonder. Every decision could have eternal consequences. But Mary and Joseph would just have to go through life as best they could. The baby would have to be fed and changed. Joseph would have to go back to work. 
Mary would keep house and later have other children. What God does is glorify the ordinary, giving it a sense of eternal wonder. The ordinary tasks of keeping a trade, housekeeping and child-rearing, took an eternal significance for Mary and Joseph. Come to think of it, they do for us, too. You and I probably won't be visited by angels or amazed shepherds, but your life is still a work of God. The child you might parent is a miracle of life. Every day you live is a gift. The meals, the chores, the job, not perhaps things that happen with a heavenly aura that knocks you backwards, but they can have a sense of God's presence and guidance that gives everything a grand purpose. This is how your life can rise above the ordinary. With God, there is no ordinary life, not for Mary or Joseph or you or me. The grace of God is upon us as well. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for listening, and may the grace of God be upon you and your family this Christmas. This has been Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.